You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 440 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, July 28th. 2022. And in this episode, we're going to talk about celebrity pastors and the local church. This is in part inspired by a video that was sent to me by my neighbor, two houses down, JP Chavez, yesterday from a Together for the Gospel conference from, I believe, 2016, or at least that's when the video was posted to YouTube. But there's a panel discussion in this video, which I'll include a link to uh, in the episode description for this podcast. Uh, There's a panel discussion in which the topic is celebrity pastors and whether we should be more concerned about how much authority we reckon famous pastors pastors of very large churches, pastors with very large online followings, uh, pastors with best-selling books and teaching resources, with big prestigious uh, connections, how how much authority we ascribe to these men. And is it, you'll hear from Carl Truman explaining this further, is it appropriate for us to suppose that pastors with large audiences, with large congregations, with large followings, uh, who are on the uh, Christian conference uh, circuit, if you will, they regularly show up at the same conferences again and again and again over years across the country, across the world. Is it appropriate and helpful for us to assign as much authority to them as we do? Or do we run some risks Are we possibly sending the wrong message to, let's say, for instance, the people who follow them? Are we possibly sending the wrong message to, let's say, for instance, young men who feel called into the ministry and are going to study and seek counsel and perhaps go to Bible college and then on to seminary and seek ordination and then become pastors themselves? in local churches, are we possibly setting up some faulty expectations and the potential for disappointment and or burnout uh, when they don't become pastors of megachurches, when they don't have time to write a best-selling book, or they don't have the connections to be able to publish and promote a book written by them to a very large audience. Uh, So what I'm going to do, I'm going to play for you a clip of Carl Truman, author of, among several other works, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which is an excellent read. You really do need to become acquainted with it if you haven't read it yet. I'm going to play for you a clip of his statements on this panel discussion, and then we're going to jump into how it relates to the broader health and edification and holiness and happiness 
and faithfulness of Christ's church, especially here in America in our day. Take a listen. Uh, I think one of my major concerns is that uh, you know, celebrity pastors have to wear these Britney Spears microphones <laughs> that's uh, vaguely ridiculous. Uh, I, I think we, we live in a world that the Western culture is, is celebrity culture. Now, you can argue about the, the fine points of definition there. The way it, though I would use the term is that we, we tend to invest peculiar power and authority in specific individuals even outside of their own sphere of competence. Uh, Hollywood is a great example that you, you have these, these Hollywood actors who are very competent actors, but around about election time, they're pontificating on everything from global warming to the economy. They're more or less incompetent in these areas, right. but we put this, this huge authority <laughs> and, and power we invested in them. Yeah. I think that knowing that society or that our culture is, is set up to, to receive the big individual in that way places an onus on the church to be very careful in how it presents the influential figures within the church. And now I'd bring it back to a sort of very specific issue for me. I uh, teach at Westminster. Uh, I'm also a, a part-time pastor, but my primary call is to, is to teach men for the ministry. And one of the things that's concerned me over the last couple of years is when I ask students, you know, who's been the most influential preacher in your life? almost never do they actually say, well, it's the man who preaches at my home church. They will mention names, some of whom are represented here today, some of whom are not. And that concerns me because here you have a detachment of the influence of the preaching of the word from the day-to-day pastoral ministry that's going on. And and that's, that's one concern. A second concern would be if I ask students, you know, who do you want to be like? The aspirational model of ministry is increasingly one which is nothing like that which they're actually going to experience. Most students leaving are going to be pastoring in churches like the one I'm connected to. We're 100 people on a Sunday morning. Maybe we'll grow to 200, God willing, in the next 10 years. Who knows? But most of my students are going to go out and pastor small, unknown churches. And if they have an aspirational model of ministry that they've got to be a David Platt or a C.J. Mahaney or a Matt Chandler, that's a problem for me as, a, as, a, as an educator. That, of course, is not implying anything in the, in the motivation of those who are pastors of big churches. Right. Praise God there are big churches. Yeah. Praise God that there are men who are gifted and that he's blessed in that way. Yeah. But when it becomes an aspirational model for most students, that's, that's a real problem. That's and good. it's a problem on the ground in seminaries. I wonder if it has some impact on the burnout rate, there's a very high burnout rate of students leaving seminary and going into pastoral ministry. Many of them leave within five years. Is that because they look to guys like you and they think that's what I'm going to experience? And then they, they end up in a church in the middle of nowhere with 50 people who are fighting each other all the time and it's nothing like the aspirational model that they've picked up. So I would say my two primary concerns are the detachment of the preaching ministry from pastoral influence and the creation of an unrealistic aspirational model. All of that is to say that is, that is a result of the reception yeah. of megachurch pastors in the culture. It's not necessarily a fault of the megachurch yeah. pastors themselves, though I would then counsel and say that we need to take every, those of you who are big names and very influential need to do everything you can to make sure that you're not promoting yourself, even yeah. surreptitiously but you're promoting Christ. I quoted Luther yesterday, who perhaps was the, the first 
celebrity pastor. 1521, the trade in Luther posters takes off in Europe. He is the first celebrity. Uh, but Luther has this, when, when he returns to Wittenberg in 1522, he, he preaches this famous sermon. It's, he, he's explaining how the Reformation was successful. He says, you know, I was asleep. I was sitting in the pub. I apologize to the Baptist, but you know, I, was, <laughs> sit, I was sitting in the pub drinking beer and the word was out there doing it all. Now he's, he's making a smart aleck quip in some yeah. ways, but he's also emphasizing the fact that really it was nothing to do with me and my person. It was ultimately the word of God that did it. Mm. And uh, so my, my hope and prayer is that the very influential pastors of very large churches do everything they can to minimize themselves. Church history is not great in showing how one big pastor is succeeded by another pastor. Right. Um, and I suppose if I can add one, one last point as well, the, the, the aspirational model, I think, connects to the intrusion of worldly categories of success uh, as opposed to faithful categories. When Paul in 1 Timothy is wrestling with the fact that he's about to pass away and the apostles are going away and he, he writes to Timothy, he doesn't say to Timothy, the way to safeguard Christian teaching and Christian behavior for the next generation is to find another 12 really charismatic guys to carry the message forward. What he says is, find yourself some ordinary guys who are respected in the church, respected in their communities. If they're married, they should have brought up their families well and they should be able to teach. There are more than a dozen guys in this country who can preach the gospel. Amen. It's disturbing the same dozen names turn up at every conference. Uh, Preaching the gospel is not rocket science. If it was, Paul would have said so. He says, find ordinary guys who are reputable and respectable and faithful and can teach. And that's how the church will, will be saved for the next generation. So it probably, probably talk Very too helpful, Carl. No, that's good. Sabidi, <laughs> you interacted with Carl some on this online. Just David elaborate. Uh, I, I regret engage. that. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, yeah, we'll cut it off there. And again, as I said, go check out the fuller uh, panel discussion video. I'll put a link in the description for this episode. You can hear what the response is from CJ Mahaney, David Platt, Matt Chandler, and Tabidi Anyabwile. But I am amused. Nevertheless, <laughs> Tabidi's first comment after Truman is finished speaking is i regret that yeah what, what was i thinking <laughs> it'll never happen again but uh in all seriousness you know what truman is expressing there for one it does carry authority not by virtue in my mind uh first and foremost because he is a celebrity himself now you know someone could say ah well you know look at you hypocrite you know, you've become a celebrity and uh, what about that? Uh, but I think the way we check against that, where we would just dismiss what he's saying, because we've got our roster of guys that we like to listen to who have a large national following, and we don't want Carl Truman uh, you know, going after our idol factory in our hearts. The way we put a check against that is to place special emphasis on what he's saying and what is self-evidently true from the evidence he gives. He's not making an argument from authority just because he's famous uh, or even at all because he's famous. Actually, you know, what he says is that he is 
primarily occupied with the business of training pastors, uh, training men, young men especially, for the ministry. And he's speaking about the observation from having asked these young men who their influences are and who they aspire to be uh, as a, a pastor, as a minister. He's speaking from that firsthand knowledge of young men who are coming to see him for instruction. And that carries a lot of weight, I, I would say, to my mind, that he is hearing them aspire to be David Platt and Matt Chandler. Maybe not so much uh, these days, uh, you know, in the past six years, we've seen some very, very unfortunate remarks from most of the men up on that stage at the T4G conference where this panel discussion was had. We've seen some very, very unfortunate and uh, frankly disgraceful comments made and some very questionable, I would say, uh, reproach-worthy, rebuke-worthy comments and actions from them uh, in the presence of all. And for Truman to say, we ought to put a check against giving too much authority and too much power to men on the basis of their being celebrity uh, is on point, absolutely on point. And, and what the issue here is, is not, hey, I resent these men being more famous than me or having more influence than I do. And, you know, the issue here is the edification of the church, faithfulness to God, living a life which at the end of, uh, we will hear from the Savior regarding, well done, good and faithful servant. Not that only these men would hear that. And for that matter, too, if it enters our mind that the only way we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant, is if we get up on a stage at a T4G conference like they do, uh, we are exactly in the condition and in the circumstance that Truman is warning about. And that is not good. Uh, we have gotten our signals crossed. We've gotten our wires mixed up. And uh, we need to double-check our priorities and our framing of these things to be sure that God's Word has instructed us as to the proper way to discern truth. You know, an important thing to consider here is you can have uh, pastors with large followings and best-selling books and large audiences, and they're not teaching the truth. They are tickling ears. And especially in the Reformed crowd, in the conservative Christian uh, crowd, which I, uh, when I'm not totally uh, joining in all things, I have a kinship to, and, and very often I do join them and I say, ah, yes, I, uh, I'm with you, right? Uh, you know, we recognize that liberal theology is well described by Jake Gresham Machen. I'll, I'll say that for shorthand without belaboring the point and getting lost in the weeds. We conservative evangelical Christians in America, very often, if we are well-read, if we've thought about this, if we have surveyed the signs of the times, if we are aware of what the discussion is in broader culture, broader society, even in the broader context of what would be called Christianity in America— uh, we 
say that J. Gresham Machen correctly described liberal theology a hundred years ago or so. But yet, <laughs> uh, are we cognizant of the potential for other error to creep in, uh, for ungodliness and hubris to creep in to our own churches, our own fellowship, our own hearts, our own minds, when the doctrinal statement of the one uh, who has uh, a large following matches ours or is very closely matching ours. Now, we all disagree on minor points here and there, but on the main points, which we've prioritized most highly, uh, if we find that there is broad agreement with somebody who is famous, who is a celebrity, if you will, are we too quick to overlook and gloss over warning signs and things which are concerning in their attitude, their way of relating, uh, you know, what their context is, if we even know it? You know, say, so I think, you know, if I could draw out more of what Truman, uh, I believe, is saying, and even if he's not, I'll say it because it does need to be said. When we separate out preaching and teaching from day-to-day pastoral ministry in a local church context, what mechanism is there for determining whether the one preaching and teaching, presuming to preach and teach, being put forward by other men who we are acquainted with uh, in a similar way (laughs) from a distance, over the internet, over the radio, over uh, a podcast over a YouTube channel, over Twitter. Uh, you know, when they're put forward, what is our mechanism for determining whether they are qualified to be saying the things that they're saying? You know, and and that's not a small point. I don't say that and and hope to just rush on to the next thing real quick. I, that is, I think, central to the concern here. And I, you know, I, this episode is not primarily about the Jordan Hall situation, but. The Jordan Hall situation is at the fore of my mind because it is a big deal and it is a big example uh, right now of the concern here and the validity of what Truman was warning about six years ago and what, you know, to give them credit, the other men on that stage said in various ways on various maybe smaller points, uh, you know, they agreed with as a legitimate concern. You know, take for instance, in the general, let's not name names for the purposes of considering this for a moment, but you, you will have names in your mind that I certainly have names in my mind. Let's suppose you have uh, a figure you are listening to sermons by, you are reading books by, you are listening to a podcast from, you are attending conferences to hear, who you have no idea except by his own uh, accounting, uh, what his home life is like. You, you have no idea if he manages his household well, whether he loves his wife as Christ loves the church, whether he's training up his children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. You have no idea. You have no idea. He might be, but should you assume? And also, do you have as good an idea about those things as you do when the person in question is the pastor of the church you attend. 
So I, I will give you some examples here because I attend and my family and I attend and I and my wife are members of Summit View Community Church in Evans, Colorado. I know Paul Pavlik and Mike Bonnell, the two pastors. I don't know Mike as well, but I know Paul fairly well, and our families have a lot of kids the same age, and we have a lot of overlap in terms of how we're training our children up, and in terms of our philosophy of parenting. Uh, You know, we may do some things differently, and we may have some distinctions here and there with regards to our particular families and how we're raising our sons and our daughters, but we know their family and their family knows our family and we can observe how the marriage is going. We can observe how the parenting is going. We can observe how their kids relate to our kids. I can observe how his wife relates to my wife, uh, Paul's wife, which is very sweetly, by the way, just for the record. Erin is a dear sweet woman and is an encouragement to my wife and God bless her. Uh, their children are an encouragement to my children and God bless them. You know, in the case of Paul Pavlik, for instance, one of the two pastors at our church here in Evans, Colorado, which is the other half of Greeley, by the way, it's just 15 minutes away across town. You know, in, in our particular church context, if Paul is preaching on a Sunday and I am listening, I can have in my mind how he is managing his household. No such awareness or familiarity is possible with any of the men, including Carl Truman, who I like very much. I love the work he did in Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And there's a few other books by him that I really would like to read soon, one of them being The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind and the book which, in some part, inspired it, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Uh, I am amused that he just tacked the word real on uh, (laughs) to the book by Mark A. Knoll from 15 years prior uh, and then just ran with it. I'm amused by that. uh, And that that in part makes me want to read both books, actually, not Truman's instead of Knoll's, but Knoll's and then Truman's. But none of those men on the conference stage there do I know Uh, how they relate to their family, how they manage their household, to be able to weigh and measure, are they qualified to be in ministry, right? None of those men, do I know, uh, meet any of the qualifications, really, except I would presume from a distance in the absence of uh, evidence to the contrary. And to some extent, what you're doing uh, in the case of any of those men or any other men you can think of besides, if you don't attend their church yourself, what you're doing is you are assuming that their local church is providing that accountability and that oversight and that they have been you know, vetted and also that they're being supported. You know, They were vetted on the front end, and then once they become a pastor, once they are ordained and they are vested with the authority of the overseer, elder, pastor in their local church, it then is the responsibility of their co-laborers in the work of the gospel to keep a close watch on their life and doctrine, their manner of relating, their way of conducting themselves. 
And if a corrective is needed, your assumption is, it has to be, that their local church is having uh, those conversations with them, for one, if it's just a conversation and then the corrective takes place uh, where it's needed because they're men. I'm a man. Uh, Three-quarters of this audience for the podcast, for the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, three-quarters of this audience is men. You know, so for the purposes of our understanding, whether these men are qualified, we're assuming that the local church is providing the accountability. Now, to get back to Carl Truman's point about why we should be concerned about how we prioritize and and how much authority we vest in men by virtue of their being being celebrities. <laughs> you know, to to one side you might have folks supposing inferring that these men become celebrities because they are faithful. And also that their celebrity status is on some level their faithfulness. So if you do watch the full video of the panel discussion, you'll hear the BD, Anya Buile, respond to Carl Truman after he says it was a mistake for him to try and debate him on Twitter. But he'll respond by saying that a double portion of honor is due to men who are not only elders, but they are serving faithfully. They're serving well. They shouldn't just be honored for having the title. They should also be honored, especially if they're serving well, if they're serving faithfully. Well, yes, that's correct. That's quite correct. And we don't want to suggest that there's something untoward about honoring somebody who's in a position of authority, if for no other reason than that they are a person in authority. You know, whether they are faithful is a secondary question, which determines whether they deserve a double portion of honor. But at a minimum, if they're a person in authority, you give them respect because they are a person in authority. As Romans 13 says, I think we do well to think of it first and foremost as being the civil sphere of authority, the civil authorities, like for instance, the United States government, or in my case, the Colorado state government, or getting even more specific, the Greeley uh, city municipal government or the Weld County government. Yes, Romans 13 is talking specifically about authorities in the civil sphere when it says, when Paul says, no authority exists except what has been instituted by God. Now, in some sense, this is speaking in the abstract about the form of authority. Authority in the abstract is a God-given, God-ordained, good thing that is there to bless you and to protect you and to preserve you and to prosper you. And you shouldn't hate that there are authorities in your life. You should be glad because they are there to reward you when you do good. They are there to protect you against others who would harm you. And of course, when we move from the abstract to specific examples, even in the context of the Apostle Paul, we find that the Roman government, the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor specifically, did not do its duty. It rewarded for centuries those who did evil and spoke evil against Christians, sometimes by giving 
those who were doing and speaking evil, their property or handing over Christians to those corrupt pagans to dispose of them as the pagans saw fit, however they saw fit, however it would please them or amuse them. But so also the other side of the coin was that the Roman Empire for centuries prior to Constantine punished those who were doing good. They rewarded in the Roman Empire those who were doing evil and speaking evil, and they punished those who were doing good and speaking good and saying true things. And so what we have to recognize is if no authority is instituted except by God's say-so, he sovereignly ordains that this or that person would be an authority, we have to also recognize that where there is corruption in the civil sphere, undeniably, and the governing authority being a man with a sinful nature, at best a repentant sinful nature by God's grace, but at worst an unrepentant, willful, stubborn, corrupt, sinful nature. If that is possible in the civil sphere, it is also possible in the ecclesiastical sphere. And really at this point in church history, 2,000 years on, it really doesn't matter what branch of Christianity you belong to. You believe, you have to, if you've read any church history at all, you have to believe that there are corrupt people who present themselves as authorities in the church. And sometimes they overstep their bounds. And sometimes they have at least an authority that it's hard to argue they don't have. If they don't have it, we can't quite articulate why or how. And so we have to submit on some level, or we have to say, we must obey God rather than men. You have the position, therefore I am under your power, I am at your mercy, you are corrupt, and you are going to use your power, which has been given to you to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil, to instead reward yourself when you do evil and to punish me when I do and say what is good because you feel threatened. And all of this really to the discerning should be cause to be careful about giving too much power and authority to any man, including for his sake, including for his sake, because there's a great deal of temptation that comes with finite sinful man, even a repentant and penitent man having a lot of authority and not much oversight. But there gets to be an additional problem, right? Along the lines of what Carl Truman is describing here. You know, he's looking at this from the perspective of someone training young men for the ministry and observing and hearing their aspirations, that they aspire to be regarded as a good and faithful servant measured against celebrity pastors. I will know that I am a faithful minister of the gospel if my high score is up there with David Platt's or C.J. Mahoney's or Matt Chandler's. He's observing it from that perspective. I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, the local church also to which these men belong If they embrace that, if they lean into that same mindset, they go with the flow on it. 
they will be afraid to provide accountability at the local level for fear of damaging the greater good as it's been presented to them. I'm not saying that the greater good is that these men continue to get invited to the conferences to speak at them. I'm not saying that the greater good is that these men continue writing and selling popular Christian literature. I'm not saying that the greater good is that these men continue attracting and retaining ever larger followers online. But I am saying that the local church is tempted along the exact same lines, albeit in a different expression, compared with these young ministers in training Carl Truman is describing. And if the local church measures faithfulness in likes and follows and retweets and shares and page visits and bounce rate and SEO score and book sales and views and tickets sold and butts in pews or stackable chairs, as the case may be, the local church when it comes to a situation like the one with Jordan Hall in Sydney, Montana, where there is a pattern of unusual behavior at best, reproachworthy, rebukeworthy, sinful, wicked behavior at worst, the local church is tempted to say nothing, to do nothing, for fear that they're being selfish. So take, for instance, a local church small town church, about the size that Carl Truman is describing. And the pastor runs several websites, several podcasts, is invited to speak at conferences, shakes hands and takes photos with other similarly positioned figures in your general tradition in American Christendom. And at the same time, Let's just say in the abstract, not naming names, he's verbally abusive to his wife and his children. He calls them stupid. He tells them to shut up. He insults them. He tears them down in front of others. He doesn't love them. He doesn't serve them. He's not attentive. He's not engaged in discipline. He can't be bothered. He's too important for that. Let's say it's bad enough that he threatens physical violence on his own family. He tells his wife, if you ever leave me, I'll kill you. Let's say it escalates. The verbal abuse isn't enough to get the results that he wants. And so he becomes physically abusive with his wife and his children. He's conditioned his local accountability group, his local church, to butt out because it's none of their business what happens in his own home. All the while, his fame, his following at a national level, is growing bigger and bigger and bigger. The phrase too big to fail is important to factor in here, not just with banks and the United States government, however you feel about fiscal policy and economic policy and domestic policy and foreign aid and government programs and taxes, however you feel about that. Let's just throw into our consideration of the situation in the American church the phrase, too big to fail. And let's see if it fits as someone gets more and more and more of a following and an audience outside of their local church. 
by virtue of the new media, podcasting, YouTube videos. Those in turn drive book sales. Those in turn lead to invites to conferences. It becomes a self-sustaining entity. It becomes not a secondary factor, but a primary factor for the decisions of whether to bring accountability in the local church. And yes, just like someone who has gotten his priorities mixed up as a pastor in a local church could be abusive and negligent with regards to his family because the church needs me. You guys are being selfish. The church needs me. I'm busy right now. Don't you know I'm tired? Don't you know I'm working on my sermon? Don't you know I'm working on my podcast? Don't you know I'm working on my book? How dare you be so selfish? Well, so also you could transpose that up. The whole principle of must be able to manage his household well being a primary qualification for an overseer is that these things work their way up as someone gains influence and following. He who is faithful with a little will be given much. He who is unfaithful with a little, even what little he has will be taken from him. So what you don't want to do is you don't want to put a man who does not manage his household well in the position of then managing the church. Because if he mismanaged his home, he's also going to mismanage the church. And then if his national following grows bigger and bigger and bigger, he will mismanage his national following. Now, the inverse is also true. And Tabidi was right to point out that an elder who is serving faithfully should be afforded a double honor. But where we have here a conflation of evidences and our priorities are out of order. And we have, I would say, to some extent, transposed some priorities, some ways of thinking and relating from the broader culture. And yes, to some extent, to some extent, conflated our definitions of success and faithfulness with how the world defines success. We need stats. We need surveys. We need census data. As long as the metrics that we are looking at show we're trending up where we want to, that's all we care about. Where are your stats for faithfulness in the home or faithfulness in the local church? Are those stats measured in how many years somebody's been married? I hear that touted. Interestingly, I don't hear that touted in the biblical text. In some circles, and I say this as a father with eight children, in some circles, the stats touted are how many children you have. And that's wrong too. My having eight children does not make me more spiritual than the one who has two children or no children. If God has only given them two, they wanted to have more, but it just it didn't work. It didn't, it didn't work out. Lord only knows why, but they only had two. They may not be any more spiritual than I am, but they're certainly no less spiritual than I am just for that fact. Why would we look at that stat? I know a lot of couples, Lauren's in my age, who have wanted to have kids for years and they couldn't and they don't know why and it breaks their hearts and they are no less spiritual. They might not be any more spiritual, but they're no less spiritual than my wife and I We'll have to ask God someday, hey, why did you give us eight? And why did you give them none? But in the meantime, if we're looking at the number of kids, 
to measure how healthy our home is, how spiritual we are, we're looking at the wrong thing. If you're looking at the size of the following, and this is where I think a lot of us are going to be caught off guard, who don't necessarily think (laughs) the father of eight, they don't struggle with that temptation that the father of eight is more wise and spiritual than the man who has been married for 10 years, 15 years, and has no children. They think I'm an idiot. Actually, I was told just yesterday, uh, something's off with you. Like some, I think I think you're not right in the head, I was told, because I have eight children. I politely kept many things that I could have said back to myself, in part because the one who said them has authority. And I want to be, for one thing, employed still, But for another thing, uh, I want to be respectful and not everything I might have said back would have been securing both of those priorities. (laughs) But why do we do this? And ought we to? And is God pleased by it? And are we more faithful? Are we wiser? Are we more discerning? Are we healthier? Are we happier for it? Actually, some of us might be a lot happier for it. If you can draw a crowd, we'll put it this way. If you can draw a crowd and you can get a lot of people to follow you somewhere, and that is respected in some sense and even lucrative. If I make, let's say, uh, for instance, $4 a book, if that's what the royalties are, and I sell 100,000 books, you do the math. I haven't, by the way. Feel free to help me out with that. But even if I don't, that's not what it's about. Whether it's a good book or not is not a question of how many copies it sold. You could have some very fine marketing folks who help you to sell 100,000 copies of a really terrible book that nobody should read. So also, you could have, you know, in my biased opinion, a really great book about homeschooling that has maybe sold 100 copies. <laughs> And my book is not inferior to the book that sold 100,000 copies just by virtue of it having only sold 100 copies. I've put nothing into marketing at all, in part because a big part of me doesn't want to become rich and famous. A big part of me actually has the opposite reaction to the celebrity pastor's business because it's so obviously undermining the health of individual Christian men and women, the individual faithfulness of Christian men and women and children that we get sucked into listening to the person with a big platform uncritically. We turn off our minds all too often and we don't guard our hearts all too often. Guard your heart for from it flow the wellsprings of life, we're told in God's word. Guard your heart. And yet to hear some people talk, if they like the celebrity pastor, celebrity preacher, celebrity Christian author, celebrity producer of Christian movies and TV shows and music, if they like them and you have anything critical whatsoever to say, oh, it's just the end of the world as they know it. Or maybe you're not even a Christian. How can you disagree with him? Oh, maybe you're not even saved. Or maybe I'm guarding my heart. <laughs> For from it flow the wellsprings of life. That's also a possibility. Maybe I'm trying to take every thought captive for Christ. That's also a possibility. 
maybe some of the thoughts being shared by these famous celebrity pastors have not actually been taken captive for Christ. I'll tell you something. Some of the things that I hear ordained ministers say, I shake my head at because these are not reasonable statements, but they're also being spoken by men who are unaccustomed to being questioned. They did not expect when they said that thing to have anyone ask them about it. And there's a certain tone, which I think is ungodly and hubristic, which creeps into the voices of far too many pastors when they're asked questions about statements they've made or positions they've taken or things they are teaching or things they are doing. There's a certain tone which does not need to carry even the smallest ounce of anger or defensiveness to still be completely dismissive of an effort at correction, at an appropriate effort at correction. I don't know what to call this tone except for condescending and paternalistic, but I think if I just called it pastoral, the pastoral tone, you would take my meaning without even knowing who specifically I'm thinking of, because it's pretty much, not all, but pretty much all, it's almost all, of the pastors I've known over the years. I'll say it's not all because there are some exceptions that come to mind, and I'm not going to tell you who they are either because then everybody else who's not on the exception list will say, ah, well, what about me? It's not the point. The point is not to point fingers at specific pastors, but the point is to say there's a certain beyond reproach, paternalistic, condescending tone that creeps into the response to questions when statements made were obviously made without the expectation of another one coming to examine him. The first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. And part of the trouble with the celebrity pastor demographic is they act like a kind of good old boys club. Carl Truman, I think, displayed a great deal of courage to weigh in. I mean, he had a little bit of an ability to do so just by virtue of being a professor and being somewhat outside of their sphere, somewhat in it, because he said he's a part-time pastor, but somewhat outside their sphere, being able to speak in a professorial way, in an academic way. But these men, I'm sorry, like they are not used to being challenged. Their idea of a challenge is to keep themselves looking very dapper, reasonably well-dressed, not too much. You know, you want to keep it down to earth. You want to be approachable, accessible, but they're very concerned with their appearance because to some extent, they're always marketing themselves. And that's part of what goes into them being celebrity pastors. There's a certain look. There's a certain dress code. There's a certain fashionability. What is not expected as much as a sweater vest as much as a choir boy haircut, as much as a winning smile, what is not expected nearly so much is to have a robust mind, to let your reasonableness be apparent to everyone. What is not quite so obvious, what is not as expected, is that you might have to sometimes answer a hard question of, why did you say that? That's not true. Or, what about this? What about that? You know, I was told about a reformed 
conference, someone I know, and I'll keep anonymous who told me and what the conference was, because the point is not to try and embarrass or even promote the names involved, but the point is the object lesson. But I was told about this conference in which some well-known pastors were invited to speak, and they get up on stage, and there's a moderator, and I know the moderators. He's a very nice guy. He definitely, he definitely takes care of himself. Handsome, great voice, very confident, very athletic. He has definitely marketed himself well. And I don't criticize him for that, but it is something to note. If he were skinny and short and fat and ugly and had an annoying voice, I don't think he would be (laughs) in his current position where he's at. And he wouldn't have been asked to moderate, but that's neither here nor there. The point is not to get ugly people, by the way, nor to get people with obnoxious voices. But the point is, there's a certain type, right? Just like you'll take my meaning when I say a pastoral tone that is condescending all too often. You'll also take my meaning when I say the physically fit, jogs and runs every day, dresses nice, but not too nice, very confident, middle to upper management type posture. He's moderating this discussion. And one of the questions gets asked, so what are you guys reading? Right, And this is a question being asked of several pastors who are fairly well known. So what, what are you guys reading these days? We'd love to hear about your reading list. And as memory serves, it's been a while since I was told this story. At least one of the pastors said he wasn't reading anything these days. One of them said that he had been reading a very popular, trendy Christian book that was hot right then. And so then the follow-up question is, oh, great. Can you tell us about it? And as, I, as has been reported to me, as I was told, he hemmed and he hawed and he sputtered and he stuttered. And the best he could do was, you know, it's just, it's really good and, and so convicting. And that is woefully inadequate. You know, for one to say, well, you know, I'm just, I'm traveling all the time. I really don't have time to, to read. I laugh long and loud and clear at, because for 10 years, I've been listening to audiobooks like it's going out of style, especially when I travel. Actually, it's when I don't get to travel very much that I don't listen as much. But if I'm driving somewhere, if I'm flying somewhere and I've got some earbuds and I've got my iPhone, you'd better believe I'm listening to audiobooks. And you don't even have to ask me about it. I'll tell you about it. Hey, listen, I was reading this book the other day. It was just really, really fascinating. And it got me thinking, what about this, 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 and this? And could this thing that we're dealing with be helped if we understood it in light of this historical event that happened or this figure and what he did that was either great or awful? Would it help us to understand some of these things that we're reckoning with? I suspect without having read Mark A. Knowles' book or Carl A. Truman's real book, (laughs) I suspect that both are addressing this very unintellectual, non-rigorous reality that has come to characterize the evangelical mind. If I could, I I want to play another clip, actually, from this panel discussion 
at uh, T4G from 2016, in which uh, Truman is asked, you know, if he was reluctant to come to the conference and what his thoughts were, what his experience was uh, while at the conference, whether he enjoyed it, um, you know, such like that. He makes some additional observations here, which I think are good to consider in relation to the evangelical mind. And then I'll I'll tell you <laughs> what I make of some of what he has to say here, and we'll close with that, at least this episode. I was going to make a comment about something that a conference like this could do. I, Having been an administrator at a seminary, I understand how money works. I understand the need to raise money. I look at this stadium and I think, you know, if you're going to... You're going to get a couple of us OPC guys in here to headline. You're not going to fill this um, I am pleased to see that the OPC is into pest control up there, though. You put up my poster. Uh, but it, it, it might be yeah, pest control since 1972. That's what we've been, been doing in the OPC. Uh, uh, I think it, it, it... Would it be impossible to have, out of nine speakers, have two guys that nobody's ever heard of? Okay, I'm one. To, to, come, to come and speak. Yeah. Guys from churches of 100, 150, 200. There are good preachers out there in churches that size. Good preachers. Is it possible to have a couple of slots in the plenary sessions devoted to guys like that so that the message is sent out that, mm. yeah, we, we don't just, if you like, patronize ordinary pastors by talking mm. about them. Mm-hmm. We give them platform space as mm. well. That's a good idea. And there are different mm. aspirational models of ministry mm. out there. By the way, we, yes. we welcome all your recommendations. Were, were, you, were you reluctant to come to the conference? You know I was. I said, I said no when I was invited. What, what happened was, <laughs> this, is a, this is a truly pathetic story. <laughs> Mark Dever, I think it was Mark, wrote and asked me if I would do a breakout session. I said no. I I mean, gone on record about celebrity pastor stuff. I, I can't go to a celebrity pastor's conference and speak. Um, so they, uh, they put the guy who cries onto me. And, uh, uh, it, 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 it kind of ruins my image as a hard-nosed OPC guy, but it, but it, it melted my heart. Brothers, so. We're glad it did. Yeah, yeah. we're glad well, it did, Carl. I didn't just cry; I challenged it. <laughs> <laughs> kind of you to come. So, what's your experience been? Do, do you I've, think I've tried we are to fly pl- below the radar? I right? try to keep in the background, but what have you I, seen from the background? What I what I really enjoyed was it's great to be with brothers and sisters that I wouldn't normally rub shoulders with. Uh, from all different denominations. And uh, anybody who came to my session yesterday will know I'm a big believer in denominations because they indicate that somebody somewhere believes something. Uh, But I've I've appreciated the fellowship. It's been great to be with so many brothers and sisters. I I don't get this opportunity ever, really. So I've very much, very much enjoyed that. Um, Yeah, I've I've had a... my wife said to me on Sunday, you're looking forward to going? And I said, no, but it'll give me something to write about. <laughs> I, I have actually, I have to concede, I quite enjoyed myself here. Good, <laughs> good, good. We're glad. <laughs> Notice here, 
you know, in the back and forth, and if if you watch it, you'll see body language and whatnot, and some of the looking back at the the audience that is there at the conference, you know, motioning for them to clap and and things like that, and you know, checking their reactions to things and whatnot. Yeah, you know, I don't see a lot of that from Truman, but I do see it from the other men, and you know, I'm not trying to dwell too much on that, but you know, playing to the crowd is something that you know can be a, a slippery slope as well. Um, you know, that I think is a subset of the concern here with how such men get to be celebrity pastors in the first place. And then by turn, whether we give too much weight to the fact that they become the celebrity pastors uh, as a result of playing to the crowd, if you will. But notice what Truman says here. He says, you know, rather than us just patronizing pastors of smaller churches, you know, here's an idea. Maybe invite some of them to speak. You know, in in some sense, I'm going to say this more rudely than he would, perhaps. But put your money where your mouth is. If this is a conference for the small local church pastor, uh, have them come up and speak. There are men who lead congregations of a hundred people who are very fine preachers. Have them come up and preach. Why does it have to be the same men again and again? You know, he makes a joke, and, and this is classic Truman, which I appreciate. I think it's disarming. I think it's part of why he's allowed to say these things to these guys. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's bad that he disarms them with humor. Um, but, you know, he says, yeah, you know, I've been on the record as saying I'm not for celebrity pastors, and I don't think we should encourage more of that. But then in some sense, he's being invited to come and speak about the concern with celebrity pastors. And so how can you pass up an opportunity to speak to that audience about what your concerns are with them, you know, and then continue on criticizing them elsewhere. But, you know, he he says, they sent the guy who cries after me, and he (laughs) did (laughs) admit, the guy did admit, C.J. Mahoney, does admit, yeah, I cried and I also challenged you. I didn't just cry. Well, okay. You know, but, <laughs> it, you know, the, the the worry is not that necessarily we don't understand these things, but rather we assign them too little weight. We don't take them seriously enough. And I would just say where we do have uh crises and we have failures of leadership and you know what happens when the small congregation pastor feels as though he doesn't have time for his family because his church needs him or his church being christ's church really but you know for the sake of understanding what we mean here i'll say the church he pastors uh, you know, he doesn't have time for them because his larger audience on a national level needs him. And he can't be bothered right now to minister to the people in his local congregation because he's on his way to a conference. He's on his way to a speaking tour. He's on his way to reach a larger audience. You know, if if everyone is doing that, then what's being neglected? And also, too, not just that, also— what happens when the celebrity 
preacher, the celebrity pastor takes a certain position, and that is assigned more weight in the local church versus what the pastor of that local church is saying. You know, and I, I think this gets to some extent catered to in a preemptive sort of a way. It's recognized that that is the dynamic on some level. And so sometimes what I have observed across the country, having attended churches and been very involved in churches across the U.S. over my adult life, some of what I think this finds expression in is there's a really, really difficult topic to cover. And rather than the pastor himself saying, here's what it is, guys, here's what God's word says. He reaches for resources from men who are popular at a national level, who do have a larger audience, who have more credibility than he does, is the inference, the implication. Here, read this book by John MacArthur. Here, read this book by R.C. Sproul. But what happens if we lean into that too much or in the wrong way? For one, you might admit some baggage predicated on an argument from authority, which in turn is actually argumentum ad populum. You, you may invite in some baggage that is fallacious, that is erroneous. That's one hazard. So also too, you may have pastors of smaller congregations or even just Christian lay people saying, I'm reading the biblical text and this is what it says, and this is what it clearly means, but Tim Keller or David Platt say this other thing. And I guess I should go back to the drawing board because they would know better than I do. Well, why does that follow? Why, why would you say that they know better than you do? Because more people know their name, because they are celebrities. And that's where we start to get this back and forth that is not good. It is not ideal. You know, Tabidi Anyabwile makes the point that notoriety is not something to criticize. You know, we all know the name of the Apostle Paul. That doesn't mean that, therefore, we should dismiss his epistles in the New Testament, right? But it would be a mistake to put somebody in the category of an Apostle Paul by virtue of the fact that we know the Apostle Paul's name. And we also know this guy's name and a lot of other Christians, all the other Christians know this guy's name as well. So we don't want to do that. And again, in terms of faithfulness, you know, this is related to, it's adjacent to the idea that we need experts to tell us every move to make and everything to do. Where does sola scriptura get lost in many people's minds? Where we go too far in saying this person is a gifted teacher they have some worthy observations. They have some worthwhile commentary to consider. We cross the line from that into supposing that they are inerrant themselves, that they are infallible themselves. It's a placement error, and it's easy to make, but all the more because it's easy to make and because we should give some grace to people who make it by accident, we need to be guarding our hearts and taking every thought captive on an individual basis. And we need to work up. It needs to be a grassroots thing. The discipleship process needs to be a grassroots thing. You know, even the best book by 
your favorite, most authoritative, most faithful Christian pastor, past or present, Christian thinker, past or present, theologian, past or present, the more removed that thinker, pastor, theologian is from you, the easier it is to insulate yourself from being individually and specifically engaged, except on your own terms. Now, for the same reasons that a lot of people prefer nowadays their smartphones over having conversation with the person sitting right next to them. What's driving that? In part, the fact that we're in control of the conversation. We're in control of whether we respond to that comment or that text message. We're in control of when we start and stop the video that we're watching, the message that we're watching, the podcast that we're listening to, the audiobook that we're listening to. I'll get to that later. I'll respond to that later. We're in control. And quite frankly, you don't have as much control, for better or worse. You don't have as much control when it's your Christian brothers and sisters in your own household, for one, or in your local church. And so we have to watch out for the temptation to prefer that physical distance and that psychological distance. And actually, here's a point the folks who like to read Dead Guys need to take into consideration. You don't get much more distant than when you start putting hundreds of years between you and the person who wrote the thing. And I'm not talking about the biblical text, but I am saying if we only ever read the dead guys, we should double check to make sure we're not preferring to read the dead guys because we prefer the abstract for its lack of proximity to our particular context. If we were reading this thing written by the same guy living in our own town, attending our own church, in our own small group, well, then we would be accountable on some level to that man. Once he found out we had read it or heard it, he might start asking us questions. He might start engaging with us on conversation. He might start looking at our manner of relating to people, whether we're abiding by these truths, whether we're being faithful in our context. Another risk here, another big risk is not just inherent to the civil sphere, but also inherent to the embrace of celebrity pastors, is that it gets easier and easier the bigger they are, the more influential they are, to be individually lazy and to say, he'll do the work. He's doing the work. I don't need to do that study. He did the study. I don't need to grapple with this. He's grappling with it. I don't need to be preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel. I don't need to be sharing Christ with my family. I can just turn on this video by this guy and he'll explain it for them. It can feed a laziness and an unpredict an an an, un, an unproductivity, an unfruitfulness on our part, and then we pat ourselves on the back to some extent by associating ourselves with this figure. You know, it's it's like the difference between being the player on the football team, college football, professional football, it doesn't really matter. If you're actually playing the game, you might be putting points on the scoreboard versus feeling the excitement vicariously by saying, I'm a fan of that team. I'm a fan of that player. I'm cheering them on. You know, Not to say that we all are going to be playing the same part in the game, but we all have to be playing in this game of the Christian life if we are Christians. It is not enough for the 
servant who buries his talents in the field to say, well, the other two, they invested theirs. That's good enough. Yeah, look at how much they reaped in the profit. That's enough. Be content, master. The master, when he comes back, doesn't say, well, these two invested and made a profit with what I entrusted to them. I'll give you a pass. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really my fault. I didn't give you as much as I gave them. I'll own this one. No, he says, you wicked servant. And just as much as we ought to want to hear from the Savior, well done, good and faithful servant, we should dread hearing, you wicked servant. All of this is related to this question of celebrity pastors, how we relate to them, how we think of them, how we engage their material, and how, at the end of the day, it all boils down to the edification of the church, serving the Lord, honoring the Lord with what has been given to us. I got to run though. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I will give a little bit of a teaser. Some of the content I'm working on outlining and organizing thoughts with regards to, you can look forward to in upcoming episodes. I can't guarantee when those episodes will be released, recorded, available, but soon, I pray, God willing, I've been in an ongoing, lengthy, in-depth discussion with my cousin Tim Mullet over at the Bible Bashed podcast. It would be really cool, actually, I think, at some point, (laughs) maybe for him to come on this podcast and we can just talk about it for you all to enjoy uh, or for me to come on his podcast. I think we're having a really, really good discussion. Uh, We do not agree on some of these points, but actually I think that that's a prerequisite to iron sharpening iron, uh, truth be told. But he's been very gracious uh, with his time and his attention in our discussing this back and forth. The question of psychotropic drugs and whether we would say that psychopharmacology is permissible for the Christian, whether it's beneficial or, on the other hand, whether reliance on prescription medication to deal with emotional issues, mental issues, is potentially sinful. I'm working on an outline. If uh, we don't do a joint episode one way or the other, I will at least be doing an episode uh, very much informed by our discussions, which I've been enjoying. Uh, But that's coming up soon. If you don't already subscribe to this podcast, you should definitely do that now, wherever you listen, wherever you prefer to listen. But also, too, another episode I'm working on, outlining. I thought it was going to be today's, but then this video was sent to me by GP, and I'm glad it was because uh, I think it's very timely and very much worth discussing and grappling with. But another episode I'm working on, which will be coming up soon, I hope and pray, and be beneficial to you, is one on how Christians relate to authority. Should Christians ever question authority. Why or why not? And if they should sometimes, when and how? And how do you know? But as I said, I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got a family to go and visit with, spend time with, to love and lead by God's grace. Today's my first day off after seven days on. So I've got some catching up to do around the house. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time. God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.